from KALW and PRX, this is Inflection Point, stories of how women rise up. I'm Lauren Schiller. I don't know about you, but I remember thinking when I was 11, just how old 30 would be. For starters, it would be the year 2000. And after that, 40 wasn't even something I could contemplate. That was beyond the pale. Well, here we are, and I will tell you when I turned 40, I hadn't started running into any of the physical stuff you think about when you think about being old. Call me lucky, but very few wrinkles, one or two gray hairs, minimal memory loss, and none of that menopausal stuff I kept hearing would happen at any minute. Night sweats, only once in a while. And even if you don't, I think these ideas of what's next and to just be getting older and to not look like we once did and to, you know, all the, you know, the wrinkles and the gray hair and the sagging body and the just aging, just getting older, just getting closer to death. Like that's going to happen to all of us. Getting closer to death. Sagging? Don't we feminists have more important things to think about before we die? So quick sidebar. You're about to get a little peek behind the curtain of how I choose my guests. It's usually one of three things. They or their publicist pitches me, I pitch them, or I'm introduced by another guest, friend, or colleague. In the case of Nina Laura's Collins, whose voice you've been hearing here, it was two out of three. I'd heard about Nina from a friend over the holidays. She told me, there's this woman who started a group on Facebook for women over 40, and we talk about all the things that happen to women over 40. Then I just kind of set that aside because, as previously mentioned, surely none of those things were happening to me. A few months later, I get an email pitching me a book about aging. Again, not for me, I'm not aging. And anyway, as also previously mentioned, we have way more serious things to think about. And then I open the book. It's called, What Would Virginia Woolf Do? And other questions I ask myself as I attempt to age without apology. The idea behind the book certainly is all of this stuff is normal and we should be able to embrace it and kind of lean into it, right? And not feel ashamed and be who we are and say what we want to say. You have more of a stronger voice now than you ever have. And I think the idea here is to encourage us all to lean more into that feeling, right? And, And that we're still really sexual and really beautiful and have a lot to offer. To not feel ashamed, to have a voice, to embrace assertiveness, To gather strength from a community, that sounds like feminism to me. That sounds like someone I should talk to. The Facebook group, What Would Virginia Woolf Do?, was the source material for the book of the same title and has over 17,000 members, also known as Wolfers. Conversations in the group include sex and dating, fashion, literature, our bodies, and our mental health. Then I remembered my friend who told me about Nina Collins to begin with. She has a great group of friends in real life, but was still cavelling over how amazing she found this Facebook group. Then a while later, I took a walk with another friend and told her about Nina Collins' group. And she asked me why, at this age, we would need a group of women we don't really know to talk about the most personal of problems. You kind of know 
who's going to say what among your close girlfriends. And when you put a question out to kind of the group, you're getting really unbiased kind of objective opinions from women who don't know you and don't have an agenda. And it's actually super helpful. So aside from realizing we could all use a breather from what's going on in the news every day and I don't know, talk about eyelash extensions for a minute. I also realized I needed to talk to Nina about what's going on in our culture right now for women over 40, that we need to feel the embrace of this larger community, and why Nina Collins was the one to lead it. I was surprised. Most of my friends are older than I am because I had kids young. So I'm 48 now, and most of my girlfriends and kind of the average age in the group is probably around 54. And I was surprised when suddenly all these things were happening to my body, and none of my friends had ever mentioned any of these. Like, I was like, what the hell? Like, everyone I know is in their 50s. Why is no one talking to me about back fat and, you know, (laughs) hot flashes and not being able to sleep through the night and, you know, incredible depression that comes? Like, why are are we not talking about this? So. I guess it felt like a forum to me where people might be able to be vulnerable. I, I, I don't know, actually. It's funny. I was not a big like AOL chat room person when the internet first. I never had an online community. I had always kind of liked Facebook, not Instagram or Twitter. I don't really get them, but I really kind of considered myself kind of good at Facebook and enjoyed it. So it seemed for some reason like a natural place to kind of throw out some questions and see what would come back. So the thing that still bewilders me yeah. <laughs> is that... Unlike those old school chat rooms where you could be anonymous, mm-hmm. on Facebook, I mean, unless you've created a whole fake persona for Which yourself. Which is not allowed. Okay. Yes. <laughs> you're out there, like your name, your picture, or whatever picture you choose to show. If, you're, if your feed is public, anyone can see anything about you. Yeah. And you're in there asking if you should have an affair. Yeah. I mean, so the way the group, I guess because it started as secret— it is interesting to me the level of trust that we've created. And I'm not, you know, it feels like a sisterhood. And we've had some betrayals of trust and we've kind of dealt with them quickly and swiftly. But we also say, like the women who run the group with me now, we've, we're very clear to remind everyone all the time, like this is the internet. Like we, there's no guarantee of privacy here. Um, and we worry about people screenshotting and sharing things. But I think we have kind of created this environment that's a little like Vegas. We feel like <laughs> this is our special place to talk about what's really going on in our lives. And the trust is implicit. I mean, we know now as the group's gotten bigger, you know, there are lurkers and there are haters and there are people who probably, you know, like to make fun of us a little bit, but they're also reading and getting it. And, you know, some of it I think is the whole idea behind the group is that kind of Brene Brown inspired idea about vulnerability and shame. And I do kind of, for the most part, I believe, like, if you're really honest with people, it's hard for them to be nasty to you. Like, if you say, like, this is my truth, it's really painful, this really sucks, like, it's a little hard for people to use it against you and be mean to you about it. I mean, they can try, but it's like, I'm just telling my truth. Like, what are you really going to do with it? That said, like about things like affairs, I mean, we do worry sometimes in the threads that are very kind of divorce-centric that people might say things that could come back to haunt them legally. So sometimes we'll write to people and say, you know, you might want to consider what you just wrote or some posts we don't put up. Like it used to be until a couple months ago, everyone could just post and it would just go up and we would kind of react to it and moderate. And now we approve all posts before they go up. So, yeah, that's a full-time job. It is a full-time <laughs> job. It's become a ton of work. We're getting so many posts. Right. And, like, we have a woman right now who's been posting this very kind of long story about abuse in a relationship that's been kind of upsetting to a lot of members. And, you know, she's she 
keeps editing her story. And anyway, we're keeping an eye on her. It, it is tricky, the question of, and we have an anonymous feature, which people use, but you can't comment anonymously. You can only post anonymously. So, But as far as curating and then suddenly being in the position of deciding what gets to go up and what what doesn't, yeah. how, I mean, how do you even make this? That feels like a really big conversation around what's happening in the media right now. Yeah, in a way. Like, how do you decide? I mean, it's good. I mean, basically... See, because originally for the first kind of year, I was the only one moderating. And so people could write in and I wasn't like taking down a lot, but I think I was setting the tone for what I wanted. And, you know, the idea is kind of a mix between we post interesting articles we want to talk about or cultural. Like right now, there's a conversation about season two of The Handmaid's Tale that's going on or um, people might post uh, an art exhibit they're really interested in. You know, everything is kind of feminist, woman-centric, second half of our lives centric. And I don't want politics in the group at all. So we really, we're pretty vigilant about that unless it's particularly feminist focused. Um, we don't want anything that's women shaming. You know, so we have certain rules. And now lately, because we've gotten such a big influx of people, I'm very focused on um, kind of modeling what we want the group to be. So we're probably airing a little bit more now on not posting things if I'm uncertain and only posting what we really want to be up there because we just want to kind of steer the ship. We do really see it as curated. Uh, In the last couple of months, it's been a little hard because we're getting a lot of women posting health stuff and we like the health stuff, but it's not overwhelmingly a health site. And so we don't post them all. And then sometimes people write to me and they're upset, you know, why wasn't my bunion post put up? And there is this curated aspect. We want the stuff, we want it to be pretty well written. We want the post to be thoughtful. We want them to provoke interesting dialogue. So we're not going to post everyone's sleepless post or... Right, so. right. It's not that we don't care. We do care. But we really want it to be interesting. So, for example, like last week, I think we got eight different posts on menstrual flooding, which is something that sometimes happens to perimenopausal women. They get like bleed a lot. And we didn't put up any of them. They were long and they were like overly detailed. And we just then I posted something and said, let's have a conversation about menstrual flooding and let's do it here. And then everyone can kind of put their stuff in that thread. So that's one of the ways we try and deal with that. Right. Just make it more manageable. Yeah. So it's been a few years that it's been up. And now since the book has been published, I'm sure. It looks to me like you've at least doubled in size. Since yeah, time. we have definitely doubled in yeah. size in the last three months. Yeah. So are you starting to see the same things come up again and again, or does it, or, or has it been changing with the times? I mean, a lot has happened in the last two years, you know, with... Um, with... You know, some things recur all the time, right? So uh, chin hair complaints, <laughs> um, <laughs> menstrual flooding, um, sleeplessness. <laughs> There's certain subjects, and really a lot of the subjects I cover in the book that are just perennial. Heartbreak, you know, pain over relationship troubles, um, depressed teenagers. So there are recurring posts, and for, but for some reason it doesn't get boring. I mean, the women are really smart and interesting, and the level of support and kind of compassion and insight. And then I guess there was always like a new twist. There's always an interesting story. There's always, um, you know, maybe it's a work issue or you know, a dynamic with another woman, a friendship issue. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm amazed how compelling it continues to be. Honestly, I didn't think that it really would be. I thought once it grew past a certain point, um, we would all get sick of it and kind of move on. And uh, that doesn't seem to be happening. I think that the sense of empowerment that we've gotten out of it has been has been really surprising. The way it's kind of made us all, you know, me included, certainly feel stronger and you know aware of our wisdom and aware of our sexuality in a good way. And um, I'm definitely when I 
started the group and then was kind of starting to write the book, I was feeling, you know, not horribly depressed, but kind of that feeling. I mean, your kids are a little younger, but my kids were just leaving the house. And, you know, that kind of like, oh, what's next? Where yeah. am I going? Um, you know, done with one career, done with one marriage, kids gone, you know. And I don't feel that way anymore. And it's certainly due to this experience for me, this kind of, you know, I feel much more, I don't know, renewed, engaged. Yeah, well, it is. I mean, I have been thinking a lot about this sort of stage of life. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I originally heard about your book, I was like, oh, this is about aging. That doesn't, that's not, that doesn't apply. Uh And then then I was like, wait, we're the same age. So I guess it applies. And oh my God, like, it's true. You know, I feel like I'm at the point in my life that I have sort of had my eye on Mm -hmm. for most of my life. Oh, interesting. Right. And so then it's, and, but I never really looked over the top of that hill. Right. Yeah, yeah. Not to use the over the hill metaphor. Like that was unintentional. But like I never did look over the top of that of, of that hill. And now suddenly I'm thinking about, well, what is over there? Yeah. And what does that look like? And, you know, fortunately, I haven't had, <laughs> you know, I haven't had the night sweats. I haven't had any of the perimenopausal things to like layer on top of that mm-hmm. yet. Mm-hmm. Um, How old are you? 48. Okay. And you might never. Some women never have any symptoms. Let's just knock on wood for that right yeah. now for myself. But I think the other thing that is interesting about this age is that I feel, I mean, obviously with the show, I feel like I have, you know, I have a voice and I'm using it, Mm -hmm. but I feel like I more equipped than ever in my life to use my voice and say what I think and ask the hard questions. And it feels like what you're doing with the group empowers, like you use the word empower, and maybe that's an overused word, actually. I think it is overused and people hate it, but I think it's also really accurate. Like it is strengthening is a good way of putting it, using your voice and realizing how much you have to offer and... Yeah, yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but no, I, I, I agree. It's we are also now culturally in this time where women are finding their voices, and with the Me Too movement, for example, mm-hmm. and you know your platform is sort of a, a, ahead of that more public curve. But are you finding the conversations on the platform are mirroring what is happening culturally as well as the perennial stuff? Uh, oh, I mean, absolutely. We certainly talk about. I mean, all the Me Too and the Weinstein and all those. I mean, have led to lots of really interesting conversations and women. You know, again, more women sharing their stories of those kind of things um, happening to them. And the group is definitely, I'd say, strongly feminist. Like, there's definitely a feeling of. Um, kind of strength vis-a-vis men and in the world. And like you brought up before we sat down, like this issue of, you know, are we aiming for equality? Are we aiming to go beyond that? Or I mean, there's there, I keep going back to that word of power. There's a sense in the group that we are very aware of our power. It doesn't feel victimy at all. So yeah, so the Me Too stuff and the, I mean, like, you know, when Oprah at the, um, was it the Golden Globes when she gave that great speech or whatever it was? Yes. What was it called? Um, Time's Up. Um, that was a cute moment. I mean, all the moments in the culture have been reflected really beautifully in the group like you know election day 2000 what was it 16 17 went horrible when trump got elected it was so horrible 16 um it was amazing in the group though because women posted hundreds and hundreds of pictures of themselves going off to vote that morning you remember how we all dressed in in white oh god it was just picture after picture after picture it was such a moving day and then of course such a crushing day in the end um but so all of these things that have been happening in the culture, we've lived through in the group through our own lens of women of this age. And it's been really just amazing to see. You know, it is this it's this feeling of sisterhood, but you can't quite. It's surprising to me that in some ways this online experience has been stronger than anything I felt in real life. It's it's kind of amazing. Yeah. Well, that's I mean, that is one of my ongoing questions is how does the online experience translate into real life? Yeah. And what I mean, what kinds of things have come up that have made you 
don't know, we've learned something that you you never thought about before or changed well, your opinion on something because of what happened. Yeah, I don't know if I've changed my opinion so much, but I've been really moved. So this winter I went to live in L.A. and I drove across country, which I'd never done before. And, and now being on this book tour, so I've met probably hundreds of wolfers, maybe 200 or something in the last six months. And from really different walks of life, you know, women in Arkansas and Memphis. And and I've always been drawn to women's stories, but I have to say I've been really surprised by how well and easily I've connected to all these women, how much I feel like we have in common, even when there's so much that's different about us. It sounds kind of cheesy and obvious, but it's, it's really surprising to, um, it's opened up my sense of the world in a way. Like I feel like there are women everywhere who really, we really get each other. Like it's this feeling of not feeling so alone. Um, and then, and women tell me that all the time, that's what the group has done for them. So that's a kind of like moving unexpected benefit from this whole thing. Like, you know, every night, like last night I went out with a bunch of wolfers in Berkeley and I, I just loved these women. I don't know how much, I'm a little worried about how much capacity I have to like keep meeting people <laughs> and like just loving them and knowing their stories. But I really do find it super interesting. Um, and your point before about kind of looking over the hill, which is funny that you accidentally used that metaphor, <laughs> but I totally relate to that because when I, I realized actually on this tour, when I started the group, I was 46 and my mom died at 46. And um, so I had always kind of had her in front of me to this to this one age, to 46. I had this kind of model and then I don't have a model after that. And I think it's interesting that that's when I started the group because in some ways the group has now you know, it's giving me a million models for all these other women who are older than 46 and all these different ways that we can live and be and experience. And um, it's, uh, yeah, it's really heartening. I was reading up on your mom and the work that you've done on her behalf Mm -hmm. since she died. Um, The story, the story that I read is that you were left to take care. Well, first of all, you didn't know she was sick. Yeah. And that she'd she'd had, she had cancer and it had come back a couple of times and you didn't know any of those times until the last time. Yeah. And that you had to come back from a trip abroad and yeah. you ended up taking care of your little brother who was yeah. 15 at that time. I mean, that's a lot for a 19-year-old girl to take on. Yeah, it was a lot. So basically, she was a single mother, black artist, filmmaker. She taught at City College. And when I was growing up, she directed plays and made two movies. But, you know, we were... I mean, she was a really a struggling artist. We had like no money and she had no success. I mean, she was kind of, she was known somewhat in the black intellectual community and um, she was an impressive woman, but, uh, and she had a couple plays like produced in the city. So it wasn't like she had done nothing, but basically then she got breast cancer when I was 11 and kept it a secret and had a recurrence when I was 15 and had a surgery, but told me it was, you know, I don't know, nothing, whatever she said, it was, she never said it was cancer. Um, And then when I was 18, I went to live in Vienna for a year to study abroad. And um, she called me home after like nine months and said, you need to come home. And she said, the cancer I once had is back and I'm going to be fine, but you need to come home. And I had never heard she had cancer. And I arrived home a couple days later, and she died two weeks after that. And I had a younger brother who was 15 at the time, and she said to me the only kind of explicit thing she, instruction she gave me was that I should become his guardian and take care of him. And I had a father who they'd been long divorced and a recent stepfather. She remarried a year before she died, but neither of them was particularly helpful or interested in helping me deal. And so I became his guardian and, you know, 
he got Social Security benefits. It was really very difficult. And and the shock of her death was like totally traumatic. I mean, and totally like all trauma kind of defines my life in a lot of ways. Um, And she was a very powerful role model. She was one of the, I mean, she was really kind of an amazing talent, but pretty depressed. And it was really screwed up that she lied to me about her illness. I mean, I think she was trying to protect me and trying to be in denial and also probably didn't really want to deal with, I mean, she she kept it a secret from everyone. Her mother didn't know until two weeks before she died. So it was her way of dealing. But anyway, then, so she made a film in 1982 called Losing Ground. She made two movies, but Losing Ground is the is the feature length one. The earlier one's only 50 minutes. And Losing Ground's the one that she wrote and directed. Um, and that film was never released. And you know, so she made that in 82. She died in 88. And then about, I don't know, seven years ago now, I guess, um, I had Losing Ground restored because it was disintegrating in a film lab in Manhattan and they were closing shop and calling everyone and saying, you have to take your films. And anyway, I had it restored really for her because I felt like she was my mother and to let it just disappear was be a bad thing. Um, and it was kind of expensive and it was an emotional undertaking and I didn't think it would lead anywhere, but you know, I thought it would be available for academics. And then... I found a distributor and we ended up getting it into this film festival at Lincoln Center and it just became a huge success. It was like it came out and the New Yorker called her a genius and said that had it been released in her lifetime, it would have changed film history, which was so amazing. So and I love Losing Ground. It's an amazing movie and it's so much her and it's just it's a funny, sexy, interesting movie. And and then about a year later, I sold a collection of short stories that she had written I guess also in the early 70s, which she had actually called Losing Ground, and I retitled it because the film was Losing Ground that she made later. But anyway, these stories I really loved, and I had discovered them in my 30s in this old trunk, and they were incredibly meaningful to me because they're basically the story of her young life. They're kind of very thinly veiled, you know, very autobiographical stories. But at the time, I thought, well, no one, I mean, I know publishing. I was an agent for years, and I thought no one's ever going to publish these literary stories by an unknown dead black woman. But with the success of Losing Ground, I thought maybe I can sell these. And we did. And they also went on to be quite successful. And now she's kind of like part of the African-American canon, I think. I mean, she's very talented. So it's amazing. Oh, my God. That's such an amazing tribute. Yeah. It's really cool and weird that she doesn't know. I can't I don't think I'll ever quite reconcile the feelings. It's just very strange to have had this happen with her work and that she is dead. So after she died, did you sort of like pack her up? and put her away until like 20 years passed before you could really like... I mean, I basically... So I had this stepfather who I really did not get along with and I ended up suing. We had like... There was no money and there was um, a life insurance policy and a house that we were arguing over. It was all really ugly. And I, um, I took all of her things that I could find and put them in this big trunk, all of her papers, and and then really kind of carried that trunk around with me where I lived and you know in my 20s and 30s and it ended up being in a basement and then you know her death was such a trauma and always caused me I was very angry and sad about a lot of things in my childhood and then in my mid 30s um I divorced the father of my four kids and really had a very very bad couple of years um I was just super angry and depressed and finally realized that I needed to kind of understand or reconcile somehow my childhood. And um, and I turned to this trunk. I mean, it was kind of it's it's funny. It feels almost like a like a made up story, but it's just true. I had the trunk brought up from my basement and I started reading everything in it. And that's when I read those stories. And um, I knew about 
you know, she had written six or seven plays and there were six or seven screenplays and stories and letters. And I had tons of letters to me, but also over the years, people sent me letters that she had written to them and I would just throw things in the trunk. So I had this pretty big archive and I spent, you know, two or three years reading it, trying to make sense of it, writing a first draft of a memoir about her and, you know, and then it led to the the recovery of her work. And I'm still, I still haven't finished that book about her. It's probably, hopefully it's like 70 or 80% done. It's a very different voice from the Virginia Woolf book. And it's been very hard to write. I mean, memoir is difficult. You know, that's the whole kind of where do you begin? Where do you end? What story are you telling? Is it her story? Is it my story? It started out as a book in some ways for me to help me understand my divorce and kind of looked at her affairs and violence and her marriage and kind of all the ways I was repeating her life, but not. Anyway, it's a work in progress. Yeah. Well, one of the things that stands out to me is that she was uh, so secretive about what was going on with her health Mm -hmm. and you are now going like doing like the total inverse yeah no it's totally true I mean I I find secrecy kind of intolerable and I'm sure it's because of my childhood and I feel like you know and was she was she ashamed that she had cancer was she I I do think there was some element with her that she thought she had brought it on herself I mean I, I I see some of that in her journals and in her writing that her own pain. Her her birth mother had died when she was an infant, so she was raised by her father and a stepmother who was my was my grandmother. I and then she had terrible luck with men and made terrible choices with men. And I think she thought that her depression had made her sick. And I kind of hate that idea, you know, of blaming ourselves yeah. for physical physical stuff. And I don't know. I mean, certainly, yeah, my um, intolerance for secrecy or caginess of any kind, I'm sure, comes from a reaction to my childhood, yeah. Mm. At this point in our conversation, I wanted to know how Nina Collins' family, her relationship with her parents, and her career up to this point led to the need for this group, What Would Virginia Woolf Do? Plus, like many of us, her career was not a straight line, more of a zigzag. And like many of us, she fell into her first career and then kept pushing forward. Lately, many women have asked me, as a career changer, what does it take to switch it up? At this point in our lives, I would argue we're more equipped than ever to make a change, but it feels riskier than ever when you're over 40. We'll hear how and why Nina did it after the break. I'm Lauren Schiller, and this is Inflection Point. I'm talking with Nina Collins, author of What Would Virginia Woolf Do? Well, I'd love to switch gears and talk about career switching. Sure. <laughs> Tell me what, like, where you started and then what made you decide that you wanted to drop everything and sure. go back to school. Yeah. It's, it's and then of, do this. Yeah. So I, w- I graduated from Barnard in 1990. I'd gone to school young. I graduated when I was 20. And I fell into a job as a literary scout for a woman named Utah Klein, who um, represented Bertelsmann and a lot of the Bertelsmann book clubs around Europe. And it was a career I didn't know existed. It's this funny pocket of publishing where there are these scouting offices um, 
reporting to European publishers or Asian publishers and maybe sometimes LA film companies on the American book market. So, you know, you're looking for books to be published in German and translated. And um, I worked for Utah for a couple of years and really loved it. And then I went and worked briefly for a year at St. Martin's Press as a foreign rights manager. And then I started my own scouting company when I was 23. And that was a really fun business. I did it for six or seven years. I had a bunch of employees and we represented huge companies, you know, Santayana, we ended up representing Bertelsmann, people like MGM and Scott Rudin. It was very glamorous for these, it was a bunch of young women in New York running around, you know. I knew every, like, during those years, I would go to a bookstore and pretty much know every single book, you know, who published it, who the agent was. We were constantly reading and reporting on things. It was fun. But then by the time I was almost 30, I kind of thought, like, if I don't stop this, if I don't, I'm going to just do this forever. Like, I'll just be doing this until I'm 65 or whatever, and there must be other things in the world I would like to do. Um, It's funny. I guess it's just, you know, different personalities. I just, I really had like an epiphany. I was pregnant with my twins before the Frankfurt Book Fair. I think I was 28, 29, and I had to go on bed rest and couldn't go to Frankfurt for the first time in a bunch of years. And I kind of realized, oh my God, it doesn't really matter if I don't, like the world will go on. Like this business actually is not the center of anyone's universe. And it was just never the same for me. Six months later, I announced to everyone I was going to shut down and I everyone found new jobs and the clients found new scouts and I shut it down for a couple of years. And um but it wasn't because of my children. Like people I thought, oh, maybe she wants to be home. It really wasn't that. Yeah. It was a feeling of like, what else should I be doing with my life? And so then two years later, I decided to come back to publishing as an agent, which I thought would be more creative and I'd work more in depth with authors. And so I partnered up with a guy and started an agency called Collins McCormick. And a friend of mine at the time who was an agent said, don't become an agent. Like selling is so venal and you're going to hate it. And she was right in some ways. Like my strength in publishing, I was a really good scout. Agenting, I never really loved. Like in theory, you should, you know, you should be selling a book or two a month. And that means loving a book or two a month. And, you know, in my scouting days, like I had to know about everything, but I didn't have to love it. And I would really love a book like once a year. So the transition was hard for me. I was always, you know, I, 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 we created a pretty good agency and I did sell books and I had a pretty good time, but I never loved it. And then... Then I got divorced when I was like 37 and went through a real depression and decided that I was just done with publishing for the second time. And um, a woman who was working for me took over the agency and we just, I shut down. I just walked away from it. You know, my mother was a writer and I never thought that I would really write. And then suddenly I started to feel like I had a story I wanted to tell. And it was this story about her. And so I started working on the memoir. And then because I was so interested in issues around death and her illness and what that experience was, I um, was drawn to this program at Columbia in something called Narrative Medicine. And I did that program for two and a half years, really loved it. And I also did a life coaching certificate at the same time. And I kind of had some ideas about maybe becoming like a death doula. And I ended up falling into a job for two years after that, working at a hospital in Brooklyn called Maimonides, where I helped create um, an empathy curriculum for residents. And I worked with nurses and doctors. It was a super interesting job um, working in a hospital. I'd never worked for a big organization like that. And doctors are so smart and there's such a culture of learning. And so I really liked it. But it ultimately felt like probably not really a career, not really the right career for me. And so then I decided, okay, I'm going to go back home and I'm going to finish this memoir. And that was the fall of 2015. And that was when I also started the group just for fun. Um, 
And then, you know, so basically then I went back to my memoir, joined a bunch of writing workshops, did a third draft of that book. And then meanwhile, the Virginia Woolf thing was growing and growing and growing. And then I um, wrote a book proposal for that just because I felt like I had to justify all this time I was spending yeah. on Facebook, basically. <laughs> and now Virginia, now it's, and then it's just kind of has taken over my life. So right now I have not worked on my memoir for I don't know, six months probably. And I really do want to finish it. But now I'm just so, the group is very demanding and I'm not making any money from it. I mean, except for the book deal. So I have to kind of figure out where it's going. But yeah, yeah I definitely, uh, I had to actually, to the point of reinvention, there was a one place in the book when I was writing the work chapter, it was the one moment where I had to really sit and think like, what is my position on this issue of, of dropping out and reinventing ourselves, which so many women do. And I might think about it differently today. I'm not sure. But when I was writing the book, I kind of concluded that I was sorry that I had given up my career in publishing. That, you know, if you put a gun to my head and I had to make a decision, like maybe it would have been better if I'd stayed as a scout or as an agent because I had this whole career and people knew me and I was talented at it. And why did I walk away from it? Why am I always changing? And, you know, so I don't know. Some people would call that being an entrepreneur. Yes, I think that's true. <laughs> and it is throughout my whole life. I mean, I really like, I like to move. I, you know, I do like change. And that's probably, some of it's probably because my mother died young. Like, I feel like I'm, you know, we're going to die and I'd like to have other experiences. Certainly that's why I shut down my first business was just to do something else. Well, the other thing that intrigues me about you is, I mean, so many things do, but on the work front is that um, you've always run your own business with the exception maybe of working at the hospital, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but you have this section in the book about, you know, women who have stayed home after having kids, how difficult it is to get back into the workforce, yeah. that there's this bias against women over 35. Yeah. But then you have like this really interesting section in the book about blondes. And I was wondering if you could read it. Sure. Uh, it's a little subsection. It's called Boss Barbie or Why Are All CEOs Blonde? You know who's getting high-powered jobs? Blondes. According to research presented at the 2016 annual meeting of the Academy of Management, an international association of organization and management scholars, while just 2% of the world's population and 5% of white people in the United States have blonde hair, 35% of female U.S. senators and 48% of female CEOs at S&P 500 companies are blonde. Female university presidents are more likely to be blonde, too. Given the staying power of the dumb blonde stereotype, you might find this counterintuitive, but in fact, it plays right into it. Co-author of the study, Jennifer Birdall, suggests the following reasons for these blonde versus blonde discrepancies on her blog. Our data suggests that blonde women are not only assumed to be younger than their darker-haired counterparts, but are also judged to be less independent-minded and less willing to take a stand than other women and also men. In other words, Barbie can be CEO as long as she's young and or docile, or being blonde might allow her to be older and more forceful than she otherwise could be. A related study published in the journal Psychological Science about race and male Fortune 500 CEOs also caught my eye. Black CEOs are more likely to have non-threatening teddy bear faces, babyish round cheeks, small noses, high foreheads, while their white counterparts are less likely to have those sort of cherubic features and instead are prized for looking mean or angry. At the time of the Women's March following the inauguration of 2017, a photo of a 70-something woman carrying a handmade sign circulated widely. It read, I can't believe believe I still have to protest this fucking shit. <laughs> yeah, that is pretty amazing, the blonde thing. Uh -huh. um, I have a very big question for you, which is just about the what would Virginia Woolf do mm -hmm. and other questions I ask myself as I attempt to age without apology. So to break those two things in half, the first question is, 
why Virginia Woolf, but also has her estate knocked on your door yet? They haven't. (laughs) Knock on wood. Okay, so I have always admired Virginia Woolf and like I read her in college and I, but at the time I had been doing this work on To the Lighthouse, this like academic work. And when we were joking about starting a group, my friend Margaret, we like talked about calling it Black Cohosh Chronicles. Um, but then she Which said, is a poison? Well, <laughs> Black Cohosh is some crazy thing you take. It's like an, a supplement okay. to help with perimenopausal <laughs> symptoms. It doesn't help me or anyone I know, but okay. people take it. Thank you. <laughs> um, and uh, anyway, it was just a really funny joke. Obviously the joke is Virginia Woolf killed herself in her 50s and she was a smart you know, amazing feminist. Um, and the joke was, should I just kill myself? Because that's kind of how we were feeling when we started the group. Had I known it was going to turn into this larger thing, I'm not sure I would have called it that, even though it still makes me laugh every single time I say it. So maybe it's worth it. But it is a little long, the title. And um, and sometimes people get a little offended. Like, are we taking her name in vain? I had to answer a question a couple of weeks ago. I was being interviewed by, I think, The Telegraph. And um on the phone, and they said to me, what would Virginia Woolf make of this? And for a minute, I thought, oh, I'm in trouble now. And then I thought, well, no. I mean, we're really feminist, and we're really women kind of looking at our inner lives, both things that I think she would applaud. So, you know, I like to think that she'd be just fine with it. Right. Um, right. What would Virginia Woolf do if she knew about this Facebook group in your book? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and no, the estate has not come knocking. We have trademarked the name, so I think we're okay. It's an LLC, and we've trademarked the name, and it seems to not be a problem. So, okay, so then the second half of the book name title is and As I Attempt to Age Without Apology. Mm-hmm. Um, so why why do we have to age? Why does that even why is that even part of the narrative? Right. Well, I think it is the I apology think, part. Right. I mean, I think the the it just goes back to the shame thing, that feeling. I mean, I guess it goes back to I mean, it's a real thing that like doctors don't really address perimenopause symptoms. Like, I mean, I have a great internist who's my age and a woman I really love. And when I went in to see her with my symptoms, she was like, "Eh, you know, you could go on the pill. I mean, basically, doctors most commonly will suggest you go on the pill or you take antidepressants. And there are other things you can do. and, And there's a lot of information about hormones and what's going on with your body, but no one really talks to you. So the question was, why not? And I think it's just really simple. It's like it's embarrassing. Like we don't want to be unsexy. Like women are supposed to be sexy and we're supposed to be young in this culture. And so it does feel vaguely like you need to apologize for, you know, getting older, for your body not being what it was, for, you know, for all these things, for the sweating and the bitchiness and the moods and (laughs) the feeling of impending doom that are, you know, documented symptoms of this phase in our lives. So I guess the question for me was we should we should be able to do it without, you know, feeling remotely apologetic yeah. about it, you know? Yeah. yeah. So I I think that that subtitle which my agent came up with, which I thought was really good, I think is completely apt. Yeah. You know, it's all it's again, it's about empowerment and feeling unashamed and unembarrassed and this is where I am and it's okay. And, yeah. You know. Yeah. Well what so okay, so I think inevitably we have to talk about Botox because you have a whole yeah. section in the book about it. Yeah. And it's something that I many of my friends use. I won't name names. Right. Um and which I've thought about but haven't. Yeah. And then I just saw an ad that it's good for migraines. Yeah, but, I know. This is know. whole like <laughs> Botox is good for you thing, movement that I think is kind of hilarious. Like it's botulism, but okay. Yeah. So yeah, I use Botox. I talk about it in the book. I have to say like in the, the beauty section is kind of funny for me because I'm like one of the, like I do certain things. I have friends who do a lot more than I do and I have friends who do a lot less. Um, I fully think, honestly, it's a huge waste of money and I'm embarrassed about it. Like not, not only the Botox, but all the creams and the facials and 
like all of it. And because I just, I have friends who don't do any of it and they don't look any worse than I do, you know, or I mean, it's just, yeah. well, it's sort of like, who are you doing it for? And you're doing it for yourself, clearly, right? You're doing it. I mean, I now, like, I get Botox, like, on the, in my forehead, between my eyebrows. I don't do it, I have to say, as regularly. I went through a phase where I was doing it more, and now I'm really at this internal struggle. I'm constantly trying to wean myself off it. So I, like, won't do it for five months, and then I'll, like, go back and do it. And, you know, eventually I'll stop. I don't dye my hair because I don't really have much gray yet. But so I think it's an internal struggle, and it's all about how you feel in the world and how you feel about yourself and what you need to do to feel more confident or feel better. Um, and I really resent that men don't do this at all, like don't have to think about this at all. Well, that's, I would it's say... It's really fucked up. Like, much of our conversation, men don't yeah. have to deal with it all. No. But you could argue that we just do this to ourselves, right? No one is telling us to do any of this, right? Is it pressure from other women? Yeah. I don't really think so. Men say that a lot. They say, oh, women just, you know... My ex-husband used to say that, that women dress for each other. Or yeah. I don't I don't think that's true, actually. I, I mean, I think I'm not dressing for other women. Like, I'm dressing for myself. Like, what's going to make me feel good in the world? And and I think all this beauty stuff that I do, like, I don't really wear makeup, but I do. I get fake eyelashes, which are, you know, just totally popular now <laughs> and a trend. They make me feel good. And, you know, I don't know. I don't know what the answer to this is. I guess my... My point in the book is you have to figure out for yourself what's going to make you feel good and no one should judge you for it, right? Yeah. And do and, whatever you want. And would you say that that is basically the definition of feminism? Yes, totally. 100%. Like, I, it makes me crazy when there are, like, women who say they hate the word feminism or, you know, young women. I've seen it even with my daughters. Like, they slightly bristle. I just don't even understand it. Like, it's not a... It's just about women being strong and doing what's right for them and what makes sense and, you know... Being equal in the world, which seems like a no-brainer, right? That's it's just not. I don't know. It doesn't seem that hard. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I think the idea, particularly with the beauty, the kind of superficial beauty fashion stuff, it's just about embracing your own choices and feeling good about it. Okay, but like when people join the group, mm -hmm. what's what like what would you say to them about the best way for people to give advice to other people who are asking for their help? You know, without judgment. Which is tricky because, of course, we are all judging to some extent, right? We're always forming opinions. But, I mean, I try and describe it as the group is, like, supportive with that, but not saccharine. Like, I don't want it to be, like, a kind of silly, like, oh, rah-rah kind of place, and it's not. Um, but, you know, we, I only—and also, you don't want people giving advice when they don't really have something insightful to offer, um, which is a little bit of a risk as the group grows because people just like to kind of chat. And sometimes now these threads will be, like, 400 comments long. I try not say anything unless I feel like I have, like, you know, something relevant to, to offer. But, yeah, I think mostly kind of without judgment and being honest, you know, coming from a place that's really honest, which most most women do. I have to say, women, like, women post stories that are really— heart-wrenching and complicated, you know, scenarios. And, and women really bring themselves to the table, for the most part, with an open heart, it seems. So I've come around. What Nina Collins is doing with the Wolfers. This is part of what feminism is all about. To be willing to discuss the tough issues, no matter how wrenching they may be to be able to expose them to the light of day and not cover them in shame, to figure out what feels good for you and not be judged for it. I've always been a fan of examining a problem from every angle. 
And if you're willing to get 100 different opinions about what to do, how to face a problem, or even what swimsuit to choose, then definitely go check out the Facebook group, What Would Virginia Woolf Do? I'll put a link to it and to Nina Collins' book on my website at inflectionpointradio.org. When women stick together, this is how we rise up. This is Inflection Point. I'm Lauren Schiller. That's our Inflection Point for today. Know a woman with a great rising up story? Let us know at inflectionpointradio.org. While you're there, I invite you to become a patron of Inflection Point. Your contribution keeps women's stories front and center, and you'll be rewarded with gifts like an Inflection Point mug and EO body care. It's all on our contribute page at inflectionpointradio.org. We're on Facebook at Inflection Point Radio. You can follow me on Twitter at L.A. Schiller. And to find out more about the guests you heard today and sign up for our email, go to inflectionpointradio.org. Inflection Point is produced in partnership with KALW 91.7 FM in San Francisco and PRX. All of our episodes are on Apple Podcasts, Radio Public, Stitcher, and NPR One. Give us a five-star review and add us to your listening queue. Our story editor and content manager is Alora Weaver. Our engineer and producer is Eric Wayne. And I'm your host, Lauren Schiller. Support for this podcast comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.